0: I'm David Robinson, and this is the first Cast. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Welcome to the AxeCast. This is our first AxeCast. We're very excited to be bringing this to you. Uh, we are doing something new here. We've done podcasts in the past at Axe Church, and we've done uh, different teaching sessions and things like that. Like. We used to do this thing called contemplate. We used to do different things where we kind of apply the mind of Christ things. And we're taking that and we're going to do that as part of this video podcast. It'll also be available on audio, wherever you get your uh, podcast. We're going to be going and applying the mind of Christ to scripture, to theology, to philosophy, to current events, to the law, to the church, to you name it. We're going to be doing that. And it'll be different. So each episode, Lord willing, will be will kind of focus in a particular area. And you may look at one and think, oh, that's not really my thing. I'm not into learning that. I'd rather just hear about scripture and not hear about how the mind of Christ applies to this or applies to that. You know, wait for the next episode because they're going to be about different things. Some of them will be kind of about thinking and how we do that Like this one. Some of them will be about you know digging into a particular scriptural passage or talking about a particular current event or what the US Supreme Court did or what's happened in some other country or what's going on in the greater church, the body of Christ, throughout the world, or throughout this country, or whatever it may be. Lots of different stuff. We're really looking forward to interacting with you during this time. And so you have a couple of options for that. I want you to know what those are up front. You can subscribe on YouTube to the Axe Cast channel on YouTube. I imagine you just go to YouTube and type in AxeCast to your search bar and hopefully you'd be able to find this channel. And it's separate from the Axe Church Northwest channel. And you can subscribe to that there. You can comment on the videos there if you want. Uh, we'd love it if you went on to wherever you Listen to your podcasts and left a review, even if you're not a listener, you're a watcher, but you're taking in the content, it would be really helpful for those reviews, particularly on the Apple podcast channel. If you go in there and give us a review, that actually helps not only, uh, well, the only thing it really helps is it puts it out there more often for people who are looking for this kind of study and this kind of uh, scripture study and applying the mind of Christ study to find that podcast so that we can have this go to as many people as we think the Lord can use it in their life. And we know that that's the plan and the mission for this. If you go to Axe Church Northwest or axechurchnw.org, you will be able to find and download our app. It will also be available there. Anyone who wants to can download that app. Podcast will be there both on video and on audio. And in the messaging part of that app, there is a message board that's just specifically set aside for the Axe Cast, you can go into the app, go into the messaging, swipe to the right where it lets you pick different channels. You should see that Axe Cast comments channel right there. You can get in there and you can comment. We're going to do our best to kind of read through comments, interact with them, maybe take a, a portion of the podcast each time and sort of work with some of the comments that come back or the questions or the concerns or the arguments or whatever it may be. And so if you'd be willing to do that, that would be great. So, YouTube on the app. Everywhere you get podcasts, you're going to be able to find it in all those places, uh, Lord willing. So, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. And today, we're going to start out with thinking about thinking. So, let's ask ourselves a question. Ourself? Ourselves. Let's ask all of ourselves a question. We think because we're humans. And that is a gift that God has given us. In fact, thinking is something that we have to do to understand, you know, the scriptures. You want to understand the scriptures? You're going to have to think. You want to understand what we're doing when we're studying the word? You're going to have to think. If you want to understand how to be a better wife, husband, father, mother, friend, son, daughter, all of these things, you got to think about them. God has given us this mind to think. We think that that is incredibly important as Christ followers. And so we we want to think, well, you have probably been around and noticed that there is a lot of, let's just say, not great thinking that goes on. And the reason is a couple of reasons. One, we have a kind of an issue with an educational system that is primarily run by those who don't have the mind of Christ, nor do they apply the mind of Christ to thinking or to teaching about thinking. So, so many of us who were educated in sort of the system of the world have come up without maybe the best tools for thinking well. But as Christ followers, we want to think very well. And so we want to take some of these episodes of the podcast and walk through what it looks like to think well because if we can think well, we can apply that thinking to all the other things that we talk about. So we're going to talk a little bit about epistemology today. Epistemology is a five-dollar word, but all it really means is it's the kind of the study how how we think about what we can know. How do we know what can we know? Uh, Questions like, can I know about God? Is it even possible to know about God? And if so, how would I know about God? Questions like that, uh, you could apply that to anything. Can I know about pencils? How would I know about pencils? Whatever it may be, epistemology is that part of philosophy, and philosophy is just basically thinking, what what we're thinking about. Epistemology is how do we know something how can we know something how much can we know something so i want to i want to give you a few statements i want you to analyze these statements okay i'm going to give you three statements here we go first one is i know i have five toes on my right foot now that may not be true for some of you bummer if that's the case or maybe you have more then congratulations but i know i have five toes on my right foot that's our first statement second one i know I am good at softball. Maybe true for some of you, may not be, but let's just go with the statement. The third one, I know my friend thinks I am good at softball. Three statements, three different kinds of statements. And as we kind of walk through, them, we're gonna see three different ways of knowing these things and three different levels of our ability to know these statements. It's important that we understand that because out there in the world, you can get in conversations with people. And there seems to be this kind of idea that if someone thinks something that has just as much value as if you know something. So if I if I say, I know that the Angels baseball team won the World Series in 2002. If I say that, whether it's true or not, okay, let's assume that it was true. I know the I think they call them like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim or something crazy like that. Just used to be the California Angels. I know the California Angels won the 2002 World Series of Baseball. And the other person says, I don't think they did. And I think the Atlanta Braves won the 2002 World Series. And that person thinks my belief, my thought, what I think is just as valuable as yours, even though you know it and I just think it. You know, and then I show the, the almanac that shows, hey, they won. And the person goes, that's probably wrong. I still think this thing. So how much you can know something and how you do it is extremely important. Let's, let's go through the statements. We're going to ask two questions about each statement. One is, how do we know each of these statements is either true or false? How do we know whether they're true or false? The second is, can we know that a statement, one of these statements, any of these statements are true or false? Let's start with statement one. And ask ourselves, can we know? Can we know? A better question is, how sure can we be? Now, we're going to have to leave out certain possibilities, okay? So whenever we're doing epistemology, you get into the people who talk about like, well, maybe we're in a simulation, and so nothing's really real. Maybe I'm just a brain floating in space, and if that's the case, it only seems like things are real, or maybe I'm dreaming, or maybe kind of that kind of, of, I'm not going to say it's nonsense, but let's just say it's not important to what we're talking about here. We're going to assume that you're awake, you're not in the matrix, you're not a brain floating in space, and that the things you see, touch, taste, smell, and whatever, generally speaking, are real things. And so we have to start kind of with that baseline and say, okay, based on assuming that life and, and reality is actual life and reality, uh, how can we know? How can we know? So uh, we have to, to think about, how we would remember the first statement was, I know I have five toes on my right foot. How do we think about how we gather evidence for, for that? Um, well, we can see our toes, touch our toes. Uh, we can even taste and smell our toes. I don't recommend that for you. I mean, unless you have really clean toes, but we can actually take most of our senses, you know, taste, touch, smell, hear, feel. I guess you could hear your toes if you could like snap with your toes or something like that, which if you can, that's let me know in the comments about that. Uh, we We can do all of those things that toes are literally attached to our body. So if we have a body and we do, we should be able to know by counting how many toes we have. So our certainty about how many toes are on our right foot can come pretty close to 100%. We can know To the extent that we know anything, we know that we have five toes on our right foot, if that's the case for you. Like I said, that may be an exception for some people, but most of us, five toes on the right foot, we can know it. We can know it pretty much as well as we can know anything. The things that we know the very most are things like that I exist, that I have a body, and that I can count the digits on my hands and feet. Those are the kinds of things that we know pretty much 100%. Let's call it 99.999, just in case you're a brain floating in space that's not really experiencing reality. What about statement two? Statement two was, I know I am good at softball. Now, how do we test that statement? It's going to be different than the way we count toes on our right foot, right? The, the evidentiary uh, discovery in this case is going to be different. And so w- what do we do? What do we do? We, we, we play softball, let's assume, and we got to look at things like, what are the results, right? Do I win a lot? Does my team win a lot? It, does my team win a lot because of my play. When I look at other people and their stats, batting average, fielding average, uh, you know how fast, how many bases they steal, whatever it may be, it, are mine above average or below average. There, there's a number of things that you can look at. You can ask people, hey, do you think I'm good at this? things like that. And as we get more and more data, more and more evidence, we can guess how good we are at softball based on the results that we get. Good being a relative term. If I'm good at softball, that means I'm very effective at things like hitting a softball, catching a softball, throwing a softball, running, you know, all of those kinds of things are involved. So the way we would do that is different than counting the toes in our foot. Instead, we would go and we'd look at a whole bunch of evidence and try to determine whether we're good at softball. How sure can we be? Well, there are a few things that could uh, come into play here. For instance, let's say I play softball here in, I'm in Vancouver, Washington right now, filming this. What if I was really good in Vancouver, Washington, meaning I was doing much better than most of the other players in softball in Vancouver, Washington, but then I traveled somewhere. Let's, Let's say I traveled to... Oh, I don't know. Jefferson City, Tennessee. And in Jefferson City, Tennessee, I recognized that the average softball player was much, much better than me. So much so that if I was there, they wouldn't think I was good. Now I've got to go look at maybe all the people who play softball anywhere and then figure out whether I'm good in comparison to all those people. Well, we can't do that. We can only have a relative sample. So probably the bigger the town you live in, if you're good in that place, you can probably guess that you're probably pretty good anywhere you went. So while we don't have that 99.999% surety on this, we have something like I put down here 79%. If you come to the conclusion after all that data that you're good, you're probably 79%, 75, 79% sure that you're good at softball. But you've seen now two different statements and two different ways of discovering if we can know it and two different ways of deciding how much we can know it, right? Now we get to this third kind of statement, which is really completely different than the other two. It says, I know my friend thinks I am good at softball. Now stay with me. This may seem kind of like, what is he talking about? Trust me, this is all important stuff. My friend, I know my friend thinks I am good at softball. Well, how do we look at this? It's going to be even different than the other two. The easiest way. For us to start to gather evidence is to ask our friend what they think, what this person thinks, he or she. What do you think about me as a softball player? And if your friend says, I think you're good at softball, there's some pretty strong evidence that your friend does think that you're good at softball. The problem is, is that there's some other questions that come. For instance, does my friend lie very often? Well, if my friend lies a lot, then the things that he says are not necessarily to be taken seriously, and so the evidentiary value of him saying he believes I'm good at softball has dropped some, right? Then we could ask things like, how willing is my friend to be sort of confrontational so that if I said hey, do I look fat in this shirt? Does he always say, no, you look great, but I know that I look fat in this shirt. Uh, Then I know that my friend is usually gonna say the thing that he thinks is gonna make me feel good. Now the evidentiary value goes down even more. And even if all these things weren't true, my friend normally, as far as I can tell, tells the truth and normally is willing to tell people uh, what they wanna know. Even then, we have kind of a, a gulf between what my friend says and the fact that I could never know what's actually in my friend's heart or mind. And so to the people that you know the very, very, very best, you can only go so far before you have to say, they can say what they want, they can even act how they want, they can do. But at the end of the day, I actually don't know what's in their heart. This comes down for the for the Christ follower into the idea that there will be some people who I think when we're with the Lord, when he comes to get us, when we go to heaven and we see people, all the people that are there, we may be going, where's so-and-so? They said they loved Jesus. They showed up every Sunday at church. They did these things, but apparently what was actually in their heart and mind was not a submission to Jesus as Lord. Maybe they didn't believe he rose from the dead, those kinds of things. And so they, they actually rejected God, even though they said that they didn't. So the certainty level that you can have that your friend thinks that you're good at softball is probably even lower than the certainty that you can have based on your stats that you actually are good at softball, which would actually also play in if you are good at softball and your friend says he thinks it, it's more likely to be true. But here we go, and and I've put down for this one 51%. 51 percent. It depends on who your friend is. It depends on how honest your friend is. It depends on how much you think there's a connection between what your friend says and what's actually going on in your friend's heart or mind. So you might come up with slightly different percentages for how well you can know these things. And the fact is that most of us, we do not spend any time thinking about these things like, well, I believe that this is true with A 53% accuracy. Well, I believe this is true with 100% accuracy. We just sort of live and these things just sort of happen and we just sort of figure it out. So when somebody says to you, hey, I've got five toes on my foot, generally we, without having to think about it, go, well, he knows that for sure. As opposed to when somebody else says, I believe that the Atlanta Braves are the best baseball team in the world. We think she maybe does or doesn't know that to be true, but maybe believes it for some other reason. Or, you know, we we wouldn't necessarily take the statement to be true because we automatically sort of judge how well we can know different things, right? This becomes really important when we apply it to really important things. You know, whether that's, let's say you're, you're married. And you're wondering, does my wife love me? Well, we go into this, this third statement type of, type of stuff. Like, I know that my wife loves me is based on her actions, her words, those kinds of things. But we don't know for sure. And that's an incredibly important relationship. So it's really important that I know that to a certain level. And I want that level to be as high as it can. Does God exist? What could be more important? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Did he come? Was he born of a virgin? Did he die for my sins? Did he rise on the third day? Am I saved? Am I going to heaven? These are massive, massive questions, all of which we need to get our certainty up to a certain percentage in order to feel comfortable and confident in both our own self and in going out and telling other people about these things that are the most important things in our life. So we have to look at the evidence, And then as we're going to get into here in a minute, we sort of get to that a certain point of, let's say, a percentage of certainty about that thing. And then from there, we can add faith. So every one of these things that I talked about, whether it was I have five toes, I'm good at softball, my friend thinks I'm good at softball, each one of those, you can get only to a certain point, and then you take some leap from there. To actually get to sort of the proof that that thing is true. So that I have five toes. It's true unless I am in a simulation or I am a brain floating in space or I am sleeping and am counting my toes wrong. If one of those things isn't true, it is true. I am good at softball. We got to like say 79% there. I can go from there to the stats and the evidence, and I can take the jump to say, yeah, I believe I'm good at softball. There is, I am justified in believing that I'm good at softball. The other one, I believe that my friend, or I know that my friend thinks I'm good at softball. We're not quite as high, but we can probably get high enough to say, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure so-and-so believes I'm good at softball. All right, now taking all that, we're actually going to look at a video that came out this week. Uh, There's a, a guy named Justin Brierley. And we actually did an interview with Justin. He, he has a show, a podcast, uh, kind of a video podcast called Unbelievable. And unbelievable, question mark. And it's, it's phenomenal. He gets, oftentimes it'll be an atheist and a, and a Christian believer. Sometimes it's a couple different Christian believers. It's, but they're talking about these issues. And it's normally kind of what I'd call a friendly debate. And so the guy Justin's over in England. Um, like I said, we did a we did a interview with him when we first were doing the what I'd call the COVID axe casts where we were all at home, and so we did different stuff. I will put a link or have Tiffany put a link in the description down below on YouTube, or if you're looking at it at this on uh, your podcast channel, it'll be in the show notes of that interview. If you want to go back and and hear from Justin, really, really a solid guy. Um, But he had somebody on his show, an atheist on his show this past week, I believe. His name is Jonathan Pierce. He describes himself as an atheist and he makes an argument. And we're going to look at the video of that argument. It's about a minute and a half long uh, video. And then we're going to kind of go through and assess that argument because he's saying some things about epistemology, which are important for us to think about. So let's watch that video We'll watch it all the way through first and then we'll kind of break it down.
1: I'm holding a pint glass which has a tiny amount of orange cordial at the bottom. That orange cordial represents evidence. And for me, this is a tiny amount of evidence in a whole pint where if I have a full pint, I have a justified belief. Right. So let's say this is the resurrection of Jesus. I look at this and say, right, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is very, very, very small, very low value indeed. So if I was to believe the claim that Jesus resurrected, I would need to fill up my pint glass with a lot more stuff. And that would require me to fill it up with faith, uh, motivated reasoning, biases, uh, stuff like, you know, heaven and hell really driving me to want to believe this is true. And the other thing I can do is artificially expand my my evaluation of the evidence so that this tiny sliver of orange cordial takes up three quarters of the glass. And my point would be that JM would look at the Gospels. We have the same access to the same evidence and same arguments, but I look at the Gospels and that's how I value it. He looks at the Gospels and he will evaluate the evidence as being three quarters of the glass. So the question is really today what we need to be talking about is what are we bringing to the table that means that our evaluations of both the claim, like what is an ordinary claim for me is not an ordinary claim for JN. so I might say naturalistic abiogenesis, so the life starting naturalistically is a normal claim for me, so I won't need as much evidence as he will need, he, he will see naturalistic abiogenesis as an out of the ordinary claim, and he will need evidence that is far beyond what I would require, and same for the resurrection. So what do we bring into the table and how can we meet in such a way that we start understanding each other and start having maybe a benchmark for, for how we arrive at our our worldviews and our background knowledge.
0: All right. So you watched that video, English guy. Hopefully, you understood everything he said. Uh, talked kind of fast. Went through a lot of stuff. We're going to slow it down. We're going to break it down. And if you're kind of like, why? Why? Why spend the time doing this? We disagree with this guy already. You know, if assuming you're a Christ follower, hey, I don't don't agree with this person. I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong about the resurrection. I think they're wrong about evidence for Jesus Christ. I think they're wrong. So I already think that. Why, Why do I have to engage with it? Why do I have to think about it? And the only answer I can give you is you're obligated to think about it. You're obligated to take the time to think about not just that you know that their conclusion is wrong, but understanding why it's wrong. Understanding why when somebody say has this same argument with you and you're sitting, this is your sister, your brother, your husband, your wife, your, your best friend, somebody at work, whoever it is. And they want to talk to you about your belief in Jesus Christ. And they bring these kinds of arguments. If you haven't thought about why they're incorrect, you're going to be unable to do anything except say what so many people say these days. Well, I don't agree with you. And my opinion is just as good as your knowledge. My opinion is just as good as your facts. Well, it's not. So we need to know how to break these things down. It's important. I know that it's kind of work and you may find it even boring. I find it very exciting and fun, but this is why we're doing this. So I'm kind of, I want to make sure you have some buy-in on the process here before we get into this video and start working the the problem here. So let's, let's start at the beginning. We're going to go through this and we're going to see exactly what's going on with this argument that's being made by Mr. Pierce. All right, here we go. I'm holding a pint glass, which has a tiny amount
1: of orange cordial at the bottom.
0: All right, let's stop there for a second. I don't really know what the difference is between orange juice, which is what this looks like to me, and orange cordial. Cordial, he says, cordial. Um, I've always heard it cordial. Uh, I think it has something to do with orange cordial is like a non-alcoholic drink that's made from like syrup or whatever. But here's the deal. If you know, you have some knowledge on the difference between orange juice and orange cordial and you want to share that with us perhaps you're from the uk or somewhere where there's a lot of cordials being uh drunk uh feel free to in the comments on youtube or on the app or wherever let us know because i would love to know the real difference between orange juice and orange cordial we can't go to the store normally speaking that i've ever seen and pick up some orange cordial so not important to the argument just an interesting thing let's keep going here that orange cordial
1: represents evidence and for me this is a tiny amount of evidence in a whole pint where if I have a full pint, I have a justified belief, right?
0: All right, we got to stop there. He he said a few things there, but one of the things that he says that we, that we have to define if we're going to understand what's going on here is he uses the term justified belief. A justified belief is an epistemological term. Okay. It's connected to how we know what we know. Some of the stuff we were already talking about, uh, If we look at justified belief as the amount of evidence that it takes to be justified in believing a particular idea... We can understand what he means when he says justify belief. So we have some examples in if you are from the U.S. or you uh, have ever seen Law and Order or any U.S. courtroom drama. We love courtroom dramas around here. So if you've seen one, we actually have standards, standards, evidentiary standards that say whether a particular belief is basically justified in a particular case. The most well-known standard in the U.S. is the criminal law standard beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt. And that what that means is that the line that has to be crossed for, with evidence in order for a jury in this case to conclude or to be justified in believing that a criminal defendant is guilty such that they can actually be punished for it is way down the road. They literally cannot have a single reasonable doubt. Okay. So we talked earlier and we went through these things. Could you have a reasonable doubt about the five toes in your right foot? No, there's no reasonable doubt about that. Could you have a reasonable doubt about whether you were good at softball? Probably. We talked about the fact that maybe they're better at softball in Tennessee than they are at Washington or maybe, you know, those kinds of things. So there's probably a reasonable doubt. That's not going to cut it. No conviction. Then does my friend believe that I'm good at softball? There's all kinds of reasonable doubt there. And so they wouldn't pass the evidentiary line the epistemological certainty line where he what he talks about as a justified belief. If you're on that reasonable doubt standard, it's a high standard. It's about the highest standard that you can have. So if you're going to look at it like his cordial glass, it's this humongous glass and has to be filled to the top if you want to use his metaphor. So uh, the, the next standard is preponderance of the evidence. That just means It's more likely than not. Now, I think that all three of our statements from earlier would pass that standard, okay? More likely than not, that's enough in that case to say, you know, make somebody pay some money for like a civil wrong, like negligence, that kind of thing. All we need is more likely than not. There's another standard that's kind of in the middle of the two called clear and convincing evidence, which is basically the middle of those two things if you want to get real simplified with it. But these are different standards. So if you ask yourself a question like, you've left, you guys are on the road, you're going to the beach, you're an hour down the road and your wife says to you, did you lock the door before we left? Now, you might think, I remember locking the door. I'm pretty sure I locked the door, but I'm not positive I locked the door because, of course, my memory of locking the door could be mixed up with I don't know, a thousand other memories when I locked the door. And so you have some, like, I'm not absolutely positive. I have a reasonable doubt about whether I locked the door. Nevertheless, if you think you remember locking the door, you're probably not turning around and driving an hour back. You're probably going to risk the contents of your home or whatever it is on that belief because you're probably, as as this gentleman would say, justified in your belief that you locked the door. At least sufficient that you would actually risk your plasma, they don't need plasma anymore, whatever, your LED TV, okay? Um, There are other things that are more certain, like, how about this? Does Amsterdam exist? Well, if you're watching this from Amsterdam, you're probably like, yeah, I can see, touch, taste, and feel it. But if you're like me and you've never been to Amsterdam or to Europe at all, you would have to say, well, there are maps that say it exists. There are people who have told me they've been there. i there's those wooden shoes. There's that whole thing going on with like the Dutch people. It seems like Amsterdam exists, but I have never seen it and therefore don't know that it exists. But if I ask myself, do I have a reasonable doubt that Amsterdam exists? I'd say no. I have no reasonable doubt about it. And of course, it doesn't play a huge role in my life whether it exists or not. I'm not buying a lot of stuff from Amsterdam, you know. So I pretty much think I know that it exists. I think most people know that it exists. So. When Mr. Pierce says the cordial represents a small amount of evidence for the re- resurrection of Jesus, he's saying a couple of things. He's saying that the evidence for Jesus is very small and does not rise to the level of being a justified belief. He's saying, we're not talking about reasonable doubt. We're not talking about clear and convinced evidence. We're not talking about a preponderance of the evidence. He has got this little tiny thing in the bottom of this cup and saying, that's all the evidence there is. And you would need all of this. So he's, he's making an argument that's, first of all, it's not engaging the evidence for the resurrection, just so that we're clear. He's making a blind statement. This is all there is. There's only this little amount of evidence, right? So I could do the same thing for anything. I, hey, here's a glass of orange cordial, and here's how much evidence I believe exists for the fact that you have five toes. I can say that all I want. The question is, is that true? Well, he doesn't engage that and he's not going to. At no point during this thing, as you've watched, does he ever engage with the actual evidence for the resurrection. What he does is he just blanketly says it's small, but he's saying it's small in comparison to something. He's saying it's small in comparison to what would be needed to justify a belief that the resurrection happened. So we can argue about whether he thinks it's small in general or not. Uh, That is a uh, I guess something we could argue about, but scholarship on this on this matter, uh, the amount of evidence that exists for the resurrection, when we talk about, well, we believe lots of things happened in the first century, right? All kinds of things, uh, things having to do with Rome and Caesar and even other countries and, and different things. We have all kinds of beliefs about what happened in the first century. And this is about the most well-attested thing that happened in the first century. We believe those other things, so we should probably believe in the resurrection. It's not a small amount of evidence. It's an enormous amount of evidence for this kind of a fact. Uh, Luke, who uh, the Holy Spirit inspired to write both the book of Luke and the book of Acts, two very long books in the New Testament. Uh, he, he described it this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Acts 1, 1 through 1-3. It says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So the former account, that's the book of Luke, what we call the book of Luke. It's one of the Gospels describing the life of Jesus. It says, Until the day which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, then it says this: to whom he also presented himself alive, after his suffering, by many infallible, certain, okay, infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke had had gone around. It's clear from his writing, he'd gone. He's not. A, he doesn't write legends. He's not a legend writer. He's not writing. This is not religious. It's not a religious thing to to Luke. He's actually going and giving accounts. There's dates, there's names, there's times, there's timelines. There's all kinds of stuff going on here in the book of Acts as well as in the book of Luke. But the book of Acts is this very historical book. And he's saying... I went, I talked to these people, they saw him alive after he was dead, and and when Luke wrote this in the first century, you could still take this writing and say, oh, he named this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, who says they saw Jesus alive, and they were alive to go ask them whether it was true. So there's a lot of evidence just right there. Forget about all the other evidence that we have, which we have lots. He mentions the Gospels. There's a whole lot more evidence than just the Gospels, not the least of which is the fact that I'm talking to you right now as a Christ follower 2,000 years later because of the weight of evidence that has essentially changed, changed the world about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now I'm not suggesting that Luke's claim there or any other particular piece of evidence is by itself, like this mountain of evidence that fills an orange juice glass. The question really is how much is there? Uh, and, and I would say it very differently than he would. I would say, there's a whole lot of evidence you have to do something with. The real question is what about the glass? how big is the glass? Okay. Um, if you're interested in evidence for the resurrection, I'm going to put down in the show notes, uh, or, or in the, whatever you call it there on YouTube. Uh, I'm going to put links to a couple of sermons, uh, messages where we've studied the resurrection, sort of the evidence for the resurrection. I'll put those there for you to take a look at. Um, I will also put so that you have it, both the link to what we're, we're watching right now and a link to sort of the whole, uh, episode with Justin Briarly at Unbelievable if you want to check those out. Um, The second question I have is not about whether you consider the evidence small or not, which Pierce says he does. The question is, uh, what size glass in this metaphor needs to be filled in order to consider a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be justified? Okay. What is the size of the glass? Okay. In other words, what do you consider enough evidence to justify a belief? Remember we talked about a justified belief has to be at a certain level in order to be reasonable, to be justified so that you, so that people are like, you're not crazy for believing that. If you tell me you believe in the Easter bunny, I'm going to say the evidence is too low to believe in the Easter bunny, and therefore your belief isn't justified. You are not going to fill the cordial glass with me on the Easter bunny. Um, The question is, how big is the cordial glass when it comes to resurrection? And the further question is, is it similar for Mr. Pierce to the cordial glass that he would use to justify beliefs in other things? Or is he saying that that the cordial glass... To believe in the resurrection, in other words, the amount of evidence it takes to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is way more evidence than you would need for other things that he clearly believes in. Now, this is this is where the problem is going to come in uh, for this for this guy. For instance, if I said I don't believe in Amsterdam, then you're like, oh, okay, um, I can show you on a map. I can bring in, you know, I don't know what they call you know, a a common Amsterdam name. We'll just say Tony. I'm bringing Tony over here, Amsterdam Tony. Everybody knows him. He'll tell you all about Amsterdam, the street names or whatever. He's lived there. He's Amsterdam guy. I can do this. And I say, no, no, I will not believe in Amsterdam unless you fly me there on a plane And you take me there, and I see it, and I can then go through the process of making sure that it's a real thing. You didn't just set it up. I have just these unreasonable expectations of evidence, and I say I don't think anyone's justified in believing in Amsterdam until all that's happened. I think most people are going to look at you and say, "Well, your standard for evidence is unreasonable. You believe lots of things without that standard of evidence." We talked about the keys, did or the lock in the door. Did I lock the door? I think I'm pretty darn sure I locked the door. Is that enough evidence to leave all my stuff possibly to be stolen? Normally i speaking. Yes. So I only needed, you know, just that much evidence. Now, am I saying I need that much evidence for that? But for Jesus Christ, I need evidence, a mountain of evidence could ultimately the question being, could the cordial glass be filled? Could you have enough evidence to fill the cordial glass according to this gentleman here, or is he being unfair? unfair. All right. Let's take a look at, let's keep going for a minute and see what else uh, Mr. Pierce has to say.
1: So let's say this is the resurrection of Jesus. I look at this and say, right, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is very, very, very small, very low value indeed. So if I was to believe the claim that Jesus resurrected, I would need to fill up my pint glass with a lot more stuff. And that would require me to fill it up with faith, uh, motivated reasoning, biases, uh, stuff like, you know, heaven and hell really driving
0: Okay, this is, this is the problem that we're gonna to start to run into is he starts to sort of mix, mix the metaphor here. So it starts with, here's an orange cordial glass and this stuff that's in it is evidence. And then he says, I need the glass filled with evidence to justify the belief. But then he says, actually, I can fill it with other stuff besides evidence. Well, that doesn't really work, but let's just ignore the mixed metaphors for a second and kind, of, and kind of work through what he said. He's saying that uh, in order to fill the glass, because there's so little evidence, he would have to, or a person would have to fill that glass with things like faith, motivated reasoning, and biases, right? Uh, here's the fundamental problem with that. What often happens, as I would call it a tactic, or it could just be a misunderstanding, in arguments between people who, who would describe themselves as atheists or agnostics and Christians is this sort of flipping of terms where they use the word faith to mean, this is what I do instead of having evidence. This is what I do instead of thinking. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what faith is or the way the Christ follower views faith, but they use it kind of as an attack to say, you only believe X, whatever, the resurrection of Jesus, that he was born of a virgin, that you're saved from your sins, that God loves you. You only believe those things because of faith. We're kind of like this guy saying, here's the glass, you get a little bit of cordial and you fill the rest of it up with faith. And he adds a couple other things, motivated reason and biases. Uh, that is not the way a believer sees faith. We'll talk about motivated reason and biases in a minute. What a believer sees faith as something completely different, faith is not the evidence itself. Okay, it's not the evidence itself. Faith is the step that we take, kind of that proof step, once the evidence has already reached the level of a justified belief. The belief has to be justified before we take the step of faith. Okay, let's let's look at Romans 11.1. 1. It's very simple. It says this, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, or the proof, evidence, proof of things not seen. Okay, so Faith is believing in the things that are not seen by the things that are seen. I believe in Amsterdam because I've seen the map, right? I believe that a tree has roots because it's standing there and it couldn't stand there without roots. I have, I am using, I have a justified belief in tree roots because I've seen uprooted trees and because that tree is standing there and the wind doesn't blow it over. I have a justified belief. My glasses, my orange cord goes all the way to the top. And then I can take my faith step to believe in the roots, even though I don't see them. This is faith. This is the way the believer sees faith. It's not, and it's it's not something that we use instead of evidence, It's the thing that we do that, by the way, everybody does at some level, right? Because of the evidence. So in Christianity, we call it faith, and there's a lot more to faith because because it's connected to God in the way that we are relationally we are relationally connecting to God. That's that's faith, but it's the same idea that everybody has about every belief that they hold period, whether it's I, yes, I locked the door, whether it is, yes, I'm good at softball, whether it is, yes, I have five toes. There's always that step that goes, here's the evidence. And now to, to take that and turn it into a belief. I believe that thing's true. There's always something that happens there for the believer. That's where faith comes in. It doesn't come in to make up for evidence, It comes in because there's evidence. And so it's just a fundamental misunderstanding to suggest that believers, that Christians, are taking this tiny amount of evidence and then mixing in, like you were adding water to the cordial or something, and and getting it to go high because we have faith that makes up for the lack of evidence. It's just not true. Uh, So if faith is basically bridging the gap between the evidence that justifies the belief and actually turning that part of your brain that says, I do believe on then what he's talking about does not work. Now, he also talks about motivated reasoning and biases. Now, again, the, <laughs> this is just really an ad hominem attack on the person who believes in the resurrection, saying you couldn't possibly believe it on the evidence, which you, he doesn't actually address the evidence. You could only believe it by adding faith, adding things like motivated reasoning, or adding things like biases. Uh, motivated reasoning means that I have a, I'm motivated to believe the thing. And therefore I will, my reason, the thing that I use to analyze evidence and so on and so forth, I will um, corrupt that, my reasoning, in order to get to the result that I want. I want to believe, right, that uh, that the Washington Huskies are the best football team in the country, they were the best football team in the country last year. Unfortunately, all of the evidence is squarely against that conclusion. But since I'm so motivated to believe it, I start coming up with all kinds of reasons. I know, but if you really understood, we lost that game because of the refs, or I start making excuses. I I have all this motivated reasoning because because I'm not looking for the truth. I'm looking for the thing I want to be true to justify my belief in it. That can happen, no doubt. It can happen. But the idea that that is what is happening or that that the evidence isn't sufficient without that is just simply not true. Bias, of course, is having a bias, having a, a bent, a lean in a certain direction. So people will say, you only believe that because you live in the United States or you know you live in a Christian culture you only believe in the resurrection because you grew up in a Christian culture or because you grew up in a Christian home or whatever it may be that is suggesting that there's a bias and that the bias is your reason for the belief unfortunately these accusations uh, whether it's motivated reasoning or whether it's biases are all on a uh, we classify them all together as a certain kind of fallacy. Okay. And, and the fallacy, it, it, the, the groups of fa- the group of fallacy is called irrelevancy fallacies. Okay. Like ad hominem, like I say, well, that can't be true because you're a Democrat or because you're a Republican or because you're tall or because whatever, I make some, something about you, the person who's making the truth claim. And therefore I'm trying, I'm rejecting the truth claim because I say there's something wrong with you. This is the same kind of thing. The evidence for the resurrection of Jesus either is or is not sufficient. It stands on its own one way or the other. To say the only reason you believe it is because this, that, doesn't matter. doesn't matter if I do believe it because of faith and motivated reasoning and biases and whatever. The question is, is the evidence true, not true? Do I have all these other reasons for believing it? Because, of course, they can all go back in the other direction. You're only an atheist because you were born in the UK, which is a post-Christian nation with lots of atheists in it. And your parents were probably atheists and 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 that's not that doesn't go against any of his arguments for why there's not a God any more than him saying you only believe that because your parents were Christian goes against any of my arguments for Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's it's not. They're not effective arguments. It's a fallacy to go in that direction. And it's a misunderstanding and a mixing of metaphors to suggest they can be added to evidence to justify a belief. They cannot. Evidence is the only thing that justifies a belief. Does the evidence reach a threshold? That's how you do it. Okay, so um, he's claiming that the evidence is small and then suggesting that the only way that the evidence gets big enough is by these other things, which is essentially an attack. Motivated reasoning, faith, biases, okay? In other words, you want you believe there's a hell somehow, so now you have to find some way to believe there's a heaven, that type of thing. Um, I think that he's, just to be clear, because I don't want to, uh, Mr. Pierce here, I don't want to suggest something that that is maybe unfair. I actually don't think he's really committing the irrelevancy fallacies, because I don't think that what he's trying to do is is attack the evidence for the resurrection with those fallacies. I think he's bringing in them. I think the fallacy does come when he brings them in to suggest that that's why other people believe something. He already claimed, I think the evidence is very small. So that's his, that's his take on the evidence. Now, getting to actually talk about the evidence and whether it's small or not is a different thing. He's, he's doing a different thing. He's not arguing against the resurrection right now. He's arguing against the justification epistemologically, the justification for believing. So I just want to be clear about that just in case Mr. Pierce happens to watch this and thinks, well, that's not what I'm doing. I know that's not what you're doing exactly, but it, you're, you're dangerously close to that uh, when you bring those in to suggest that that's why someone believes in something or that's why they think a belief is justified. Okay. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move on and see what's next here.
1: Me to want to believe this is true. And the other thing I can do is artificially expand my my evaluation of the evidence so that this tiny sliver of orange cordial takes up three quarters of the glass. And my point would be that JM would look at the Gospels. We have the same access to the same evidence and same arguments, but I look at the Gospels and that's how I value it. He looks at the Gospels and he will evaluate the evidence as being three quarters of the glass. So the question is, really today, what we need to be talking about is, what are we bringing to the table that means that our evaluations of both the claim, like what is an ordinary claim for me is not an ordinary claim for JM. So I might say naturalistic abiogenesis, so the life starting naturalistically is a normal claim for me. So I won't need as much evidence as he will need. He, he will see naturalistic abiogenesis as an out of the ordinary claim, and he will need evidence that is far beyond what I would require. And same for the resurrection. So what do we bring into the table and how can we meet in such a way that we start understanding each other and start having maybe a benchmark for, for how we arrive at our, our worldviews and our
0: background knowledge. Here we can see, as we get to the end of the video, that Mr. Pierce's argument, his ultimate argument, is not really about what fills the glass, right? Um, is there enough evidence to fill the glass? Kind of as much as, a, as how big is the glass? How big does a glass have to be? And he's suggesting, and I think he's being somewhat fair in saying, I have different size glasses for different things, and so do you. That's what he's that's what he's suggesting. Um, whether that's true, that being his, his argument at the end. So I have a glass that has this much evidence in it, and it takes this much evidence to justify the belief, and for the resurrection, the glass is this big, but for other things, maybe it's smaller, and for you, the opposite may be true. Here, here's the problem. This is where the argument is most clearly false there ought not to be various tests and amounts of evidence, right, for similar kinds of truth claims. So I can't say it takes this much evidence, let's say a big gulp, 7-Eleven Bigel, probably like 32 ounces, takes 32 ounces of orange cordial evidence in order for me to believe that I have five toes on on my right foot, but it takes only a shot glass of evidence for me to believe I have five toes on my left foot right? They're the same kind of truth claim. They would have the same kind of, we would use the same kind of investigation, evidentiary investigation for each one. And what would justify a belief in either would be basically the same. And so you can't be changing how much evidence you need. The evidence is always, 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 the amount of evidence needed to justify a belief is always, always going to depend on the kind of truth claim that is being made. And so when we look at what amount of evidence, what kind of evidence, what amount of evidence would we need to justify, remember justified belief, to justify a belief that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Just that simple belief. Did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? Well, we need evidence of a couple of things, right? The first question we have to ask is, is there sufficient evidence, assuming that we all believe that Jesus Christ existed and all scholars that have a reputation of any kind, atheist agnostic, Christian, Muslim, whatever, agree that Jesus Christ is a historical figure who existed on the planet at roughly the time that we say he did. And frankly, most of them believe that most of the things in the gospel are relatively accurate descriptions of what happened. So uh, let's not worry about that part. So the first question we have is, did Jesus Christ die? Did he die? Particularly, did he die on a cross, you know, under under Pontius Pilate, That the Romans put him on a cross and killed him. Did he die? That's the first question, because the question is, did he rise from the dead? So, did he die? Next question. Is there sufficient evidence that Jesus Christ was physically, bodily alive after he died? Those are the two questions. Is there sufficient evidence to believe that he died? Is there sufficient evidence to believe that he was physically alive after he died? Now, I think that you can get atheist and Christian and agnostic and Muslim and Jewish person and Mormon and, you know, whatever. You know, all people could get together. And we would, if we would say, well, what kind of evidence does that take? What's the t- what type of evidence do we, does it take and how much of it does it take? We would all, if we were not being biased about it, we would all say about the same amount. We'd say it takes about, you know, uh, a pint glass like he has there. It takes a pint glass of evidence of orange cordial to get there. And this is the kind of evidence you need. Do we have records of it? Do, were there people who saw Jesus die? Did they record that? Well... What do you know? We do have that. Do they record it in ways that are believable? Uh, In other words, we look at other historical things that we believe to be true. Is this recorded in a similar way? Well, what do you know? It is. And then we go, did people see him after he was dead? Well, People said they did. Well, did they write that down? Well, you know what? They did. They wrote it down. And how many of them wrote it down? And how many documents do we have attesting to that? And did it have an effect? Well, in fact, it did. Were there people who testified to this? Absolutely, there were. Was there any risk for the people who testified to this? Yes, they were going to be killed if they said that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and they still said it. If it was untrue, they would have said, so there's, I'm not going to get into all the evidence. There's so much stuff there, but the question is what kind of evidence do we need and how much of it do we need? We should all be agreeing about the size of the glass. What Mr. Pierce is saying is that the Christian's glass for the resurrection is a shot glass, but his glass is a big gulp. And then he's switching it with... What he, he talks about is naturalistic abiogenesis, which I'll tell you about in just a second. And he's saying now it's the opposite. The Christian's glass for that is a 32 ounce big gulp, and his glass is a shot glass. This is not true. This is not true. The Christian's glass for the resurrection is a glass that is normal compared to the truth claim being made. What kinds of things? Is there any way to, to have evidence? of an event like the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Sure there is. Like I said, did anybody say it? Did anybody write it down? Right? Do we have reasons to believe it? Hey, when the people who had an interest in proving that he didn't rise from the dead were trying to prove that he didn't rise from the dead, did they find his body and show it to anybody? No. Did they record that? Yes. Do we have evidence that there are people who are bribed to suggest that Jesus Christ's body was stolen? Yeah. There's all this stuff, right? So so we ask those kinds of questions and then we look for the answers. We do not come into it with a bias against it. And if we don't come with a bias against it, we're not going to make the, the cup, the cordial cup, any larger than it needs to be for anything. Anything else will be done. it's a, You come in and you be fair. So if there's biases... Okay. And my, this is what I would say to Mr. Pierce. If there's biases and motivated thinking, those biases and motivated thinking aren't being used to fill a cup. They're being used by a person to try to increase the size of a cup larger than it would need to be. This is, we, we run into this a lot. This is called moving the goalposts. So if I say, well, what kind of evidence do you need to believe that Jesus died, rose from the dead? And you go, well, I need to know, you know, a lot of people think that you have all kinds of beliefs about the Bible. Okay. I got a text today from a friend of mine who was saying, "Yes, my friend thinks that the Bible was written by, you know, was was written by the Catholic Church at a certain time for bad reasons and blah blah." And it's like, well, these these are just well known to, claims, well known to be false, like. There wasn't a Catholic church. There was just a church at the time. These books existed. We have massive thousands, tens of thousands of copies of them. They were the books that were circulated. All, all these kinds of questions about the Bible. Okay, But a lot of people, because they watch Discovery Channel or whatever, and listen to people who are um, fringe- scholars or niche like out there uh, fringe scholars who, of course, because it's TV, you want it to be entertaining, who say crazy things about the Bible and about how it came about, or they read Dan Brown fiction novels and they go, see, the Bible was this and that. Then they may have some come into it with some views about, say, the evidence for Jesus Christ, a lot of which is in the Bible. And so they, they say, well, you need to show me that there's, you know, reliable, historical written evidence about X. Then I show them, I show them that, right? I go, okay, here's the thing. And we get to the point where I show them how the Bible, how we know we have the original books, who wrote it, when they wrote it. And we go to, through all the scholarship that shows that we have, that the scriptures, that the gospels, that the book of Acts and so on are reliable. As as reliable as anything else that we have from that time. More reliable. You can't, you can't even compare the number of copies and attestation. And I show them that. And I go, and, and this is where we have all this evidence. And then they go, well... And I'm not speaking about anybody in particular. I'm just saying this could happen. Once we get to that point, they like, go, okay, I, I can see that, that you've proven that it's reliable. You've proven that it says that Jesus rose from the dead, but I actually need something more. And then they move the goalposts and they move the goalposts and they move the goalposts until basically it's like, well, Jesus, is kind of like Thomas, I got to put my hands through, I got to put my fingers through his hands and through his side in order to believe. Like, I'm not going to believe until he comes here and he tells me the rose from the dead and I know I'm not dreaming and I can, and I can, you know, test it all and so on. And it's like, well, what you're asking for is unreasonable amounts of evidence compared to how much you would need to have a justified belief, right? So it's about making Glasses big. That's what biases and motivated reasoning do. They make the evidentiary question. How much do you need? If we're asking, well, how do we know something, right? What can we know and how do we know it? And we go, well, we can't know it unless we have this huge thing to justify the belief. That's where Mr. Pierce, I think, is, is off. To suggest, now he may do that, but to suggest that that is what the believer is doing is nothing more than an ad hominem attack against a believer. It's not true. Now, he may run into a believer or two who does that, but thinking, theological, philosophical, trained, educated believers are not doing that. We're trying to play on a fair field, giving every uh, attempt that we can to give the best uh, argument from the other side and work with that argument and have a normal amount of evidence for the truth claim that's being made. So when he says, and this sort of gives the lie to the whole thing, when he says, well, for the Christian, this much evidence and this much motivated reasoning and bias and faith make up enough for that person to feel justified in believing in the resurrection. And for me, I'm nowhere near it. But for me, naturalistic abiogenesis, I only need this much for, and I'll believe it. Well, here's the problem. <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a well-attested historical fact. Naturalistic abiogenesis, just so you know what that means, that means that life arose from non-living matter without the help of God. That's what it means. Naturalistic, not, no God, only naturalistic processes, nothing quote-unquote supernaturalistic, although if God exists, then it's as natural as anything, right? But anyway, naturalistic, no God, abiogenesis, life from nothing life from non-living matter. okay, there is exactly zero evidence, exactly zero evidence of that. In fact, we know it's impossible. It cannot happen. Trust me, they've tried. There is no evidence at all for the truth claim that life arose from non-living matter. The only reason that you would believe it is because it must be true if you're right about there being no God, And the idea that atheism has come even remotely close to suggesting that maybe there is no God is absurd. Okay? Hey, you can't prove a negative, so that's not on them. You can't prove a negative. But besides that, the mountains, mountains and mountains and mountains of thoughtful people, Christians, who have... Looked at the evidence and who have come to the conclusion that a God exists, that Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son, that he died for your sins, that he rose on the third day, that you can be saved. Those those things are not just believed by wackos somewhere who fill up their cordial glasses with uh, faith and motivated reasoning and, and, and biases. These things are believed by scientists, doctors, college professors, judges, lawyers plumbers, uh, teachers, all kinds of people who actually have read many, 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 many books, written many, 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 many books, and believe these things. So to suggest that the proof that God doesn't exist is overwhelming is absurd. And in order to believe in naturalistic abiogenesis, you would have to believe there's overwhelming proof that there was no God, because the only way that it's true is if it has to be true. And then we have to say, it has to be true, but we have no conception of how it's possibly true. None of the laws of physics none of the laws of biology work for that. And in fact, if you just take it one step back, not only does life have to come from non-living matter, but everything has to come from nothing, okay? Multiverse theories that are based in nothing, you know, notwithstanding, okay? So my point isn't to, to uh, argue against naturalistic abiogenesis, which he brings up, my point is to say that comparing those things, or to say, I believe in naturalistic abiogenesis based on no evidence, is to maybe say something about his own motivated reasoning, and maybe it's to say something about his own uh, approach to evidence, but it says nothing about the Christian's approach to evidence, and to suggest that that's the case is incorrect. Okay, so there's kind of your epistemological intro introduction to how do we know what we know? Why, you know, what can we know and how do we know it? These are all within the types of things we think about. And this argument that was made that just happened to catch there on YouTube this week is the kind of argument that's regularly made that is essentially trying to cast doubt on truth claims of Christianity based on things like, if you watch, if you go back and watch it again, what you'll see is it starts out with this claim that the evidence is very small. Well, what it turns out is what he means is that the evidence that exists could never fill the glass that he would create, that it would need to fill in order for him to believe it, which says something about him and what he's decided you need, but doesn't answer the question, what is a normal amount of evidence to believe that justified belief and does the evidence of the resurrection meet it? It is my contention that it does both and actually is quite overflowing the glass. So I love you. I am glad to see you today. I had a good time with the first Acts cast, uh podcast, and I hope to see you next time. Let's pray before we end. Father, I just pray that you would be with us, that you would uh, just love us because we love you. I thank you for the evidence of the resurrection because it is a resurrection that I hope in. Lord, I pray that if there's people who watch this that don't know you, that they would Get in the comments or call the church or call another church or get in touch with a believer so they can come to know you, Jesus, so they can be saved, that they can believe in their hearts that you were raised from the dead and make you Lord of their life. Because we have promised that if we do that, that, if we believe that God raised you from the dead, if we believe in our hearts that you are our Lord, we'll be saved. And I pray that they would be saved because those who are not are in fact under judgment. And we have good evidence to believe that that's true. In fact, I think that all of us know that that's true. And I thank you for your grace and your salvation and bringing us from that judgment. We love you, Lord. We look forward to the rest of this week. We look forward to seeing other believers, brothers and sisters, as we worship you on the first day of the week on Sunday, singing praises to your name and studying your word. We thank you for your word. We love you in your name. Amen. Thanks for being with us on the AxeCast. We look forward to seeing you next time, Lord willing.